This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Wednesday, March 2nd. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what you need to know today. The Texas primary tests Trump's clout with the GOP. And President Biden's message of national and global unity. That's today's one big thing. As President Biden delivered his first State of the Union address last night, the refugee crisis continued to grow, with nearly 700,000 Ukrainians fleeing their country in search of safety. And Russian forces continued their offensive, bombing the country's two largest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv. Biden's message to Russian President Vladimir Putin was clear. When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. Unity, both at home and abroad, were emphasized throughout the president's hour-long remarks. He also focused on America's wars back home, especially on COVID and inflation. Axios's Margaret Taleb and Glenn Johnson are here with their takeaways about last night's State of the Union address Good morning, Glenn and Margaret. Good morning, Nyla. Good morning, Nyla. President Biden had noticeable energy at the beginning of this address, the first third all about Ukraine. How much do you think this was written in the past 24, 48 hours about Vladimir Putin? Nyla, there's no doubt this is not the speech he originally intended to give at around the one-year mark of his presidency, but Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine has grabbed the world's attention, forced itself as a priority now for the United States, and he had no choice but to talk about that. It also was really the only moment where he could expect to have any unity. And for a president who so desperately wants to be able to unify the country around everything, it's never going to be a COVID. But for a moment there in that chamber, he had Republicans on their feet as well as Democrats, the first lady embracing the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Republicans and Democrats dressed in yellow and blue. Glenn, how tough do you think Biden was in this address on Vladimir Putin, on talking about Russian oligarchs, what the U.S. position is in all of this? You know, you mentioned the energy that the president displayed. It's easy to have that when you're sort of in a righteous cause. And he seemed to have a lot of momentum in the opening part of his speech, talking about President Putin and then seizing on this sort of populist target, the oligarchs, and saying that he's going to convene a Justice Department task force to go after them and go after their yachts and their expensive homes. It echoed back to his first speech to a joint session last year, where his populist target was the top 1%. And he said, we want these people to pay their fair share to help support the rest of the country. It was something that was very easy for the public to rally around. And going after oligarchs, talking about the evil that's being perpetrated by President Putin, those were, again, easy touchstones for him around which to rally the American people. Meanwhile, COVID, the pandemic, didn't come up until more than 30 minutes halfway into the speech. 
Was there enough conversation about COVID, about the economy, about sort of the traditional things that we have heard the Biden administration talk about over the past year? Unfortunately for Biden, he's found out there's very little upside in talking about COVID anymore. Yes, the country's turning around. Yes, the mask mandates are relaxed or over. Americans are very happy about that and they're ready to move on, but they are not giving Biden credit for it. So if you're giving a political speech and there's no upside in taking a victory lap, if no one's giving you credit for helping bring COVID to its heels, maybe it's a relief not to have that much time that you have to talk about it. What stood out to you guys? What was your what were your kind of key moments of the speech, Glenn? What struck me most, I guess, was the Ukraine section. I don't think that you can really overstate the gravity of what is occurring there right now. A lot of this other stuff is rhetoric that's been warmed over. Uh, this was something new and is just this new facet of life for so many people. A couple of things stood out to me. Uh, one, Biden's decision to call out the defund the police campaign and really distance himself from it to say it's about funding the police, not defunding the police. Uh, That is a very purposeful departure from the left flank of his own party. An optic that you couldn't miss, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, but the spoke in the wheel for Biden on domestic spending, sitting with the Republicans, but standing with the Democrats for most issues throughout the speech. We saw Governor Kim Reynolds from Iowa give the Republican response. Key takeaways from her? She said that Biden and the Democrats have sent us back in time to the late 70s and 80s. She was talking about the echoes of runaway inflation, violent crime, and a time when the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. So that was one takeaway. And the second was that she was making the case that the Republican Party, uh, through its involvement in kind of the school board races and critical race theory messaging and all that stuff. So My takeaway is that she's telling us the playbook. This is exactly the arguments that the Republicans are going to be running on against Democrats heading into the midterms. Exorcist Margaret Taleb and Glenn Johnson, thanks to both of you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Nyla. Thanks, Nyla. In 15 seconds, we're back with the biggest takeaways out of the first midterm primary in Texas. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. Texas kicked off the 2022 midterm election season with its primary yesterday. It's an early test of what an endorsement from former President Trump will mean for GOP candidates this year. Asher Price is co-author of the Axios Austin newsletter and has three big things we need to know. Hey, Asher, let's start with the big one. What has this primary told us about former President Trump's impact? That he's got a lot of clout in the Republican Party. The candidates he endorsed for statewide office won their elections handily. The one big caveat is that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who tied himself very tightly to Donald Trump, he filed lawsuits on his behalf after the election in 2020, but is beset by a federal indictment now and is in all kinds of legal trouble. He did not pull out a clear victory in Tuesday's race and is headed to a runoff. And it looks like that runoff will be with George P. Bush, son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. So that's an interesting one to watch for the next line of the Bush political dynasty. Asher, turning to the governor's race now, who will Governor Greg Abbott be up against in November? Tuesday's race kind of certified something we all knew was going to happen, which is that Greg Abbott is going to face Beto O'Rourke. And that's going to be the most expensive gubernatorial race in U.S. history. You have 
Abbott, on the one hand, who marched to victory, fending off attacks from his right wing, and who's already put together a huge war chest. And you have Beto O'Rourke, who's a champion fundraiser. And for Abbott, this race could be the antecedent to a national race in 2024 if President Trump decides not to throw his name in the hat. What else did we learn about Democrats in Texas from yesterday's election? Democrats are are hungry for young progressive talent. Here in South and Central Texas, where I am, we saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come down and Elizabeth Warren to rally for really promising Democratic candidates. That's just a signal of the party moving in a more leftward direction. And of course, that'll shape the politics in Washington in the coming session. Asher Price is the co-author of the Axios Austin newsletter. Thanks, Asher. Thanks a lot. One last Washington, D.C. headline for you before we go today. Yesterday, the National Park Service announced its predictions for peak bloom time for the cherry blossoms in just three weeks from March 22nd to the 25th. The Cherry Blossom Festival is fully back and in person this year for the first time since 2019. And this year marks 110 years since Japan gave us 3,020 cherry blossom trees as a gift of friendship. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. 